invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. My own here. There we are. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I've been preaching through 2 Corinthians this summer, and uh, we're at the last chapter. In fact, you, you picked the wrong week to be here. Next week, we're going to be looking at greet one another with a holy kiss. But uh, we're finishing up 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and um, the title of today's message is Examine Yourself. And, and I thought as I wrote that, as I thought about this passage and what Paul is asking these people to do, it's a lot like what we're asked to do by, by our doctors. Our doctors are saying, hey, if you notice something on your body or in your body that's not right, what are you supposed to do? You go to the doctor. Now, unless you're a man, and we just ignore it, don't we, ladies? Like, you know, how long have you had this? Well, it's been going on for about a year now. Well, what are you waiting on to go to the doctor? I, there are times you go to the doctor. I went one time with, I had a wart on my finger. And I thought, you know, I was there for something else, and I thought, well, you know, they can burn those off, right? So I showed it to my doctor. This was when I lived in Gastonia. We have some Gastonia people here. Dr. Dan. I said, you know, what can you do about this? He said, oh, wart like He pulled out and showed me one on his own thumb. Had it 20 years. I thought, you're a doctor. So, I mean, I went to the drugstore and got something to take care of mine. I guess he's still walking around with his. But what do we do when we examine ourselves and see that there's something that's not right, then you need to do something about it. Physically, you, you go to the doctor. You say, doctor, I've noticed something either externally or internally that's just not right. And so they can take care of that. Perhaps there's something that can be done for it. Well, Paul is calling the Corinthians to do that very same self-examination. So let me read the passage. This is, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 of 2 Corinthians and then get into the context, context this morning. Paul says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come, I will not spare anyone. Since you're seeking proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is mighty and who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness. Yet he lives because of the power of God. We also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed towards you. Verse 5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong. Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when, ourselves, when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete. For this reason, I'm writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Paul is writing to a group of people that he loved dearly. He had obviously spent a couple of visits there. We know the first time when he established the church, he was there for 18 months. And he's been there another time. He's hearing things about the church, though. And if you can imagine being a father or a mother, if you're a parent, if you had heard something about your children that disturbed you, what are you going to do? 
Well, you might write a letter. Now you're going to pick up the phone or you're going to send an email or a text. You're going to get word to them to say, I don't like what I'm hearing. And what Paul was hearing is that he was under attack, that the people, the false teachers and false apostles in, in Corinth were speaking ill against him because they wanted to get in good with the Corinthian church. And it was a lot of it was about power, prestige, or money for these people. And so they accused Paul of some weird things. For one, they said well, he, his, were his gospel, his word, really isn't all that valuable because he doesn't charge anything for it. Well, they were charging for theirs. And then they were even accusing him he's not really an apostle. He really doesn't have the authority to speak as he does. And so Paul addresses that. You get to verse 3, and he's basically asking the question, are you questioning us? Are you questioning me? Are you questioning the other apostles since you're seeking for proof? Of the Christ who speaks in me. Well, that in and of itself should be, if, if you're saying, I don't have the authority to do what it is that I'm doing, that it's not Jesus who's speaking through me, then as they examine themselves, they need to ask the question, did I come to faith through the preaching of the Apostle Paul? If so, then that's an indication right there that the Apostle Paul is anointed by God. He's got the authority from God to preach the message. In fact, Paul, his conversion or their conversion was proof that Paul was an anointed apostle. Paul lived out 2 Timothy 2.15. Anybody in Awanas here? You should know this verse. Anybody teach Awanas? Okay, wait a minute. I'm not seeing any hands. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Thank you, Phil. I see that hand. The buses will wait. Is there anybody else? You know about Awanas. Thank you. <laughs> their verse is 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. That's what Paul did. Paul didn't have anything to be ashamed for, and yet he's being attacked by these people outside the church. And so he says, you know, we're not weak towards you. Here's the problem. Here's what the problem in the Corinthian church was. They were mistaking humility for weakness. And Paul's about to give the example of Jesus. They're mistaking weakness, they're mistaking humility for weakness in the same way that I'm seeing some people today Look at some preachers today, and we mistake arrogance for anointing. In the same way they mistook humility for weakness, we have the occasion today with some of the preachers I'm hearing on television, radio, and in person, you mistake arrogance for anointing. And so Paul brings up the subject of Jesus. Jesus wasn't weak towards you. Don't mistake his death on the cross as a sign of weakness, even though he came in weakness. What did Jesus do? Jesus emptied himself, according to Philippians chapter 2. Jesus is God, and yet he didn't grasp the Godhead and hold on to it. He literally emptied himself of all that, took on the form of a servant. In, a second, in Philippians chapter 2, 7, it says, He emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. I want you to think about that for a minute. Some who viewed that as weakness. You remember the Apostle Paul when Jesus is coming out of the garden about to be arrested, what does Paul do? He grabs a little knife and cuts off a guy's ear. What does Jesus say? Hey, wait a minute. Do you not realize that I could call 12 legions of angels? Jesus had just prayed, God, if there's any other way for this cup to pass me, if there's any other way to redeem mankind other than this, then let's do it that way. But he submits himself to the will of the Father, submits himself to his authority and says, but not my will, but your will be done. I believe when Jesus got up and walked out of the garden, it was because he knew where he was headed. And when the Apostle Paul did this little lame thing, Jesus says, 
That's not what we're doing here, Paul. I could have called 12 legions of angels. A legion of angels is 6,000 angels. So if you do the math, Jesus could have called 72,000 angels. Now, I don't know, there might have been a hundred of these soldiers that came with torches and spears and all that. But in the economy of God, how many angels would it have taken? I'm thinking one. If Jesus had just said the word, we're not doing it this way. Wipe them out. And he said, I could have called 12 legions. Paul, you don't get it. What appears to be weak to some was incredible strength and discipline on the part of Jesus that he didn't do that. In fact, the life of Christ, he came as a suffering servant. He emptied himself. He was a carpenter. According to Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 3, they asked the question, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are these not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They looked at the humility of Christ as a sign of weakness. He lived humbly with no home. Matthew 8, 20, Jesus said to them, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That that kind of flies in the face face of some of the, you know, name it, claim it, and frame it theology of today. Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. In fact, he had nothing at the cross, Matthew 27, 35. When they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. Jesus went to the cross, basically all he owned were the clothes on his back. He had five articles of clothing that were going to be split up among four guys. That's why they had to cast lots for the fifth item, because it didn't divide equally. That's the Jesus who emptied himself. Yet, here's what Paul says, yet he lives because of the power of God. Jesus didn't stay dead. He died on the cross, but three days later he rose from the dead. Was that weak? No. That was a full demonstration Of the power of God. So are you questioning us? Paul turns the tables on them in verse 5 and says, You need to check yourself. Here's the scary thing about church, folks. Religion, good works, and church membership can give you a false sense of security. And I'm talking to the church of today. Paul says, test yourselves. In the next verse he says, examine yourselves. Literally, Make proof of. It's kind of like what David said in Psalms 139 when he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Paul's saying, examine yourself. Test yourself. In fact, the word examine yourself means to prove by heat. Kind of when they assay metals, if there's gold, they burn away everything that's not gold, so they get down to the purity of the metal. Paul's saying, Allow that to happen in your life. Let me take that from 2,000 years ago into today. It's a good idea today to examine yourself spiritually and ask yourself the question, am I a genuine believer? I mentioned religion and church and good works. Is there anything wrong with those things? No. But they in and of themselves don't save you. Are we supposed to do good works? Absolutely. Ephesians 2.10 says we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus Four good works that we should walk in them. Here's the problem. You get the, heart, the cart before the horse, and all you're doing is the good stuff, thinking somehow that's earned you salvation. It doesn't work that way. So Paul says, examine yourself. Are you sure of your salvation? Contrary to what some teach, you can know that you have eternal life. 
First John chapter 5, verse 13 says this. John writing says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You, you can know. I looked at one of those surveys in the paper one time that has, you know, where they ask a question. I've always, I've, I heard just this week, and if you want to be left alone, go to the mall with a clipboard. Nobody will talk to you. But sometimes those clipboards, they talk to people, and they ask, the question asked in this particular newspaper was, are you going to heaven? They had eight people's picture, you know, it kind of tells who they are, what they do for a living, and then their answer. Eight people asked the question, are you going to heaven? I don't know how many people they asked, but they put eight people's picture in the paper. Not one single person said yes. I'm going to heaven. That's surprising. But what surprised me more is not one single person said no. You know what they said? Their answers were things like this. Well, I hope so. I've really tried to live a good life. I hope so. One person said this. I got a 90% chance. I didn't know they gave odds. Like, what's the over-under on whether you're getting in heaven or not? Do we get there and like, you know, we meet St. Peter at the pearly gate and it comes down to a coin toss? Heads, you're in. Tails, you're out. No. In fact, the Bible is so clear. You can know. So when Paul says, examine yourself to see if you're of the faith. Listen, don't be led astray. He's telling them by these false apostles who are not about Jesus. They're about themselves. And I would say the same thing to us. Listen, you may be a church member. You may have gone through some religious motions. But are you in the faith? Who's Paul writing this letter to? He's writing it to the church at Corinth. And some people would say, well, I'm kind of offended that he would write that we're in the church. Obviously, we're believers. No. Examine yourself. Are you sure of your salvation? When in doubt, go back to the basics. One of the first gospel tracts I ever remember seeing was a thing called the Four Spiritual Laws. Anybody remember that? Four Spiritual Laws, Campus Crusade, excellent gospel track. It had a graphic in the back of it of this train. And this is the train. Fate, fact, faith, or feeling. There are times you wake up and say, you know what, I just don't feel saved. There's going to be times you doubt your salvation. There's going to be times Satan kind of pounces on you and wants to rob you of the joy of your salvation. And so what do you do? You come back to what are the facts? Well, the facts need to be more than just, I've done some good things and I'm hoping my good deeds are going to outweigh my bad deeds. You're in trouble if you face God with that scale. What's the facts? Have you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you placed your faith there? So I'm putting my faith in the facts, not in the feeling. The faith is the engine. It's the locomotive. That's what drives the train. Here's the problem. I don't have the graphic for it. But too often we do it backwards. We go totally by feeling. I just don't feel it. Or I do feel it. And some people, the reason they feel it is they just keep pumped up all the time. They keep excited. Well, it's great to be excited. It's great to be emotional for God. But you know what? If that's where you're placing the hope of your salvation, that the caboose don't drive the train. So what are the facts? Romans chapter 3, verse 23. We're going back to the basics. What does it say? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Who does that include? Who does all include? Everybody. Thank you. Some of you raise your hand. It means me. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans six twenty three. For the wages of sin is death. What does that mean? We're all sinners, 
And what do we earn for our sin? Death. And it's really worse than that. It's eternal separation from God. But aren't you glad that's not all of Romans 6.23? What does the rest of it say? But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the fact, ma'am. Remember the old show, Dragnet, that show up at the door? And some woman would just start talking. He'd say, just the facts, ma'am. That's what the facts are. In fact, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It doesn't say you got a 90% chance. John, when he wrote 1 John 5, 13, doesn't say, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may have a 50-50 shot of getting into heaven. It doesn't say that. You can know. Folks, there's no greater peace in your life than to be able to lay your head on the pillow at night and know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life. And folks, it's not about where you're a member. It's not about whether you've done something religious. And those things are good. I encourage you to be a member of a church. I encourage you to be baptized. I encourage you to do those things. But folks, that's not what saves you. What saves you? Faith in Jesus Christ. His substitutionary death on the cross took our place. That's the facts. Genuine faith is marked by a few things. I got five of these. They're not on the screen. Five things that you can, ought to be able to see in your life that would let you know I'm a child of God. Number one, an overwhelming sense of sinfulness. Sin ought to cause you to mourn. We live in a generation that laughs at sin. Sin, what does the Bible say about sin? The Bible says God hates sin. Number two, a genuine desire for righteousness. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they'll be satisfied. Number three, submission to divine authority. Paul's dealing with people who don't want to submit to God and didn't want to submit to his God-given authority. Number four, obedience. Jesus put it this way in Luke 6.46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Think about that for a minute. A lot of people that could face Jesus one day and say, Oh, yeah, you're my Lord. And Jesus say, I don't know you. Depart from me. I never knew you. Fifth thing, love for God and others. 1 John 3.10 puts it this way. It's obvious who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not practice righteousness, nor anyone who does not love his brother. Pretty blatant. So what are the facts? Have you placed your faith in the facts? The truth of God's word. And Paul in verse 6 says, by the way, we don't fail the test. And then lastly, he asked the question, are you growing in the Lord? In fact, Paul tells him what he's praying for. And I think this, one of the signs of a pastor's heart is that he's praying for these people. He's about to come see them. He, they're about to have a visit from the doctor. And what Paul's saying is, I'm writing these things so that you'll get this stuff in order before I get there. So that I don't have to come in severity. But Paul says, here's what I'm praying. I pray that you do no wrong. Paul knows for them to persist, for some of them, to persist on the course they're on. They're not on this, all on this course, but there's some in the church that are on a destructive course. 
And for them to stay on that course would cause Paul to have to exercise his authority when he gets there. He says, here's what we're praying, that you do no wrong. Not that we appear approved. In other words, Paul's saying, we are approved, but that's not the point of my prayer. My point is not so that we get there and look good. We're not struggling over whether we're approved or not. We're asking you to ask yourself the question, are you approved? Are you right with God? Paul says, we can do nothing against the truth. We speak only for the truth. What's the truth? The truth is the gospel. And that's what Paul had shared with them years earlier and stayed there for 18 months helping them to grow in the faith. And he leaves the church to go about his other missionary journeys. And as soon as he does, wicked people come in. Folks. That's the way Satan operates. If you're a member of a church, I promise you, Satan wants to come and sow seeds of discord. He wants to sow seeds of doubt. He wants to sow lies. That happens at every church. Somebody one time said, Robert, you see a demon behind every bush. I said, no, they're not in the bushes. (laughs) They're coming in the door. So be very, very careful. In fact, as you examine yourself and the truth of the gospel, you need to examine, is what I'm hearing from this radio preacher, TV preacher, or pulpiteer, is is it square with God's word? Because if it doesn't, don't listen to it. Reject it. It's dangerous. In fact, one of the most dangerous places for some people to be is in the church for this reason. You become entombed in truth. You know the truth, but the truth hasn't penetrated your heart, and it hasn't affected your life. What does the Bible say? The Bible says the demons know the truth and tremble. They know Jesus is Lord. They know he was raised from the dead. But it can't change their life like it changes your life. And so it scares them to death. Paul says, we even rejoice when weak if it means that you're strong. Paul would be pleased to appear weak if it meant they walked in grace and truth of their Lord and Savior. He says, we also pray that you'd be made complete. Here's what Paul's praying, and it's really a fatherly prayer, and that is that you grow up. I remember when our oldest child was graduating from the sixth grade. They had a graduation celebration. And I'm sitting there. This is back in the day of them big old video cameras. Anybody remember those? It dawned on me one day, I'm, I've watched all of my kids' Christmas programs, school programs, all that through this little lens, you know. Do what? And vacations, that's right. We've seen it all. It's typically the dad just walking around. You just know them, man. Walk, look them at Disney World or whatever. Fortunately, we've gotten a little bit smaller cameras now. But I looked over in sixth grade graduation for our daughter, and they were playing, they were putting pictures up on the screen, and she's crying. And I said, why are you crying? She said, our little baby's growing up. And I said, yeah, (laughs) that's a good thing. And I know what it is to be a parent, to see your kids. I mean, you talk about when the first one you sent off to college is tough. We sent four off to college. It's tough. But you want to see them grow up, get out of diapers, quit playing in the nursery. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. Spiritually, what Paul's saying is, I'm praying that you be made complete. What does that mean? In fact, the, the, the tense of the word he uses here is only used this one time in the whole New Testament. You've got to go kind of the root to get where it's used a bunch of other times. But it literally means to be made complete, to repair what is broken, a complete adjustment. 
Elsewhere where it's used, the root means to be brought to maturity. So Paul says, I'm praying that after you examine yourself and you know, yes, I'm a child of God, that you will grow up to look more like God. When, when people see you, they ought to see in you attributes that they read about God. They ought to see a change in you that you're growing up. Same way physically. Ever go to family reunions and aunt so-and-so pinches you on the cheek? Oh, my, how you've grown. What does she mean? You've gotten taller. Maybe you've got more hair. Maybe you've got, you know, a deeper voice. Physical things are happening in your body, and she says, oh, you've grown. Well, the same thing ought to be true about us spiritually. We, we shouldn't be going to the nursery and still seeing you at 30 years old and 10 years in the face still playing with Tonka toys, unless you've got nursery duty. All right. So Paul says, I'm praying that you grow up in the faith. I'm praying that you be made complete. In verse 10, last verse, he said, this is why I'm writing. This is the reason that I've written this whole letter. Paul's about to come to see him for the third time. He's on his way. He said, this is the reason I write. I'm writing to avoid the harsh language when I visit in person. In other words, take this as a warning. Do some self-examination. Wake up to the fact that you've been lied to by the false apostles and come back to what is the truth of the gospel. And the last thing he said is, the authority that the Lord gave me, that's where his authority came from, was for the purpose of building you up and not tearing you down. In fact, there are architectural terms. For building up, it literally means confirming a structure. Tearing down means demolition. Paul said, I'm not coming to demolish I'm coming to build you up. But buildings that are built that will last have what? They have a great foundation. And what is their foundation? It's Jesus. And if you've built your building on something other than that foundation, it's going to fall. And you'll easily be led astray. So this morning, we bring this message into the 21st century. Are you a child of God? Any question in your mind that you are in the faith? And then the second thing is, are you growing? As Paul wrote to these people, I'm praying that you'd be completed. I'm praying that God would finish the work that he started in you. Folks, I'm praying that for us. That we'd be growing in the faith. Let's pray together. You bow your heads. Father, thank you for the truth. Thank you for Jesus who died on the cross. And although it appeared weak to men, men still hadn't figured it out apart from the gospel. It was the absolute power of God on display. And so, God, I pray for us as we do this self-examination that we would come back to the facts and know beyond any shadow of a doubt that we're children of God. And that once we know that, we would see in our life growth. Thank you, Father, that you continue the good work that you've started. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.